Hi everyone, it's Crypto Dentist here. So we've got a new sponsor, and we are really excited about this one. It's Macrodisiac, the man, the myth, the legend himself, David Bell. David has recently launched his weekly Macrodisiac email, which is essentially a trader's guide to macroeconomics for less than half a cup of coffee a day. If you follow him already on Twitter under the at Macrodisiac underscore handle, don't forget the underscore there, so that's at macrodisiac underscore, then you'll know already the kind of critical analysis that he brings to the table from his trading background. You'll get a weekly email covering all kinds of macroeconomic themes and topics from the likely impact and effects of central bank and government policy statements to David's own views on the markets and trade ideas he's looking at. So if you want to sign up to his newsletter, it's $24.99 a month. That's £24, British pounds and pence, $24.99 a month with 30 days free and he'll soon be accepting Bitcoin. So if you're looking for a unique take on the markets, the global economy and how it all hangs together, then sign up now. The link is in the show notes, so head on over there and you can sign up. And don't forget... We still have our other key sponsor, independent author Chris Hannon, who has penned a book that is being compared to The Hunger Games and Maze Runner, and it's called Orca Rising. That's Orca Rising, which has been nominated for the People's Book Prize. Head over to Amazon now and pick up a copy before Hollywood buys the film rights. You can't really consider yourself to be a crypto whale without having a copy of Orca Rising on your desk, can you? This is Commissioner Hester Peirce. Welcome to Crypto and Grill. Okay, welcome back everyone. It's Crypto Dantas here with Stig of the Pump. Stig, how are you? I'm excited. I'm very excited. I'm not surprised. I'm also looking o- I'm also looking over a lovely London skyline as well, which which is particularly pretty today. Good. Well, um, look, without further ado, we've got a very interesting guest on today. And in our previous shows, we've covered a lot of the concepts about cryptocurrency, what Bitcoin in particular is, what it represents. Um, how to think about it, perhaps, and also how other blockchain-based technologies could become an integral part of everyday life. Um, what we haven't really covered and, and explored in more detail is what the regulatory landscape looks like for this new and emerging environment. And we're delighted to be joined today by Commissioner Hester Peirce from the Securities and Exchange Commission, who we hope will be able to shed some more light and guidance um, on that space. Commissioner Peirce, welcome, and how are you? Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, I do hope I can shed some light, but before I begin, I have to give my standard disclaimer, which is that the views I represent today are my own and not necessarily those of the commission or my fellow commissioners. And often in this space, I'm not fully aligned with uh, with with my colleagues. So I'm working on changing that, but uh, haven't succeeded yet. Perfect. No, totally understandable. Um, 
so quite often I, I have to uh, to cut my co-host here out as well and uh, and retract um, his statements also. So uh, I'm I'm fully uh, fully familiar with that approach. Um, so look, our our podcast is um, a steady on ramp to help uh, people new to the cryptocurrency environment understand more about the space, um, how it might emerge and evolve over the next few years. And so it'd be great to just provide some context. I know um, you've done this a couple of times with uh, the What Bitcoin Did podcast with. Peter McCormack and uh, a couple of others, but it would be really great if you wouldn't mind just a couple of minutes giving some context around yourself, um, your background, um, perhaps your formative years, um, what you studied university and, and um, how you actually arrived at your current role and what it is you do. And then we can branch off into uh, the broader context of what the SEC does um, after that. So who are you and where do you come from? Sure. Well, I... I uh Grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, which is the heartland of the U.S., and um, went to school there and studied economics, and and then went went on to law school with a little bit of time in between. Spent some time in Europe in between, um, but in law school, I I like the fact that um, you know law combines well with economics, which I studied as an undergraduate, and and so when I graduated, I. Um, worked for a judge for a year, and then I went on to work at a law firm where I worked on securities law. And so that sort of started my trajectory um, to the SEC. I, I spent a couple of years at the firm and, and really enjoyed thinking about securities markets because they combine uh, economics with, with securities, um, with the markets. The actual the market is what really interested me. Um, and so I went to the SEC um, because I realized you really need to be at the SEC to understand how it works. And that's only become more evident to me over time. It's really difficult to figure out how this agency works from the outside. And so I really do sympathize with people who are trying to figure that out now in the context of crypto. Um, so I spent, I spent a number of years at the SEC on the staff uh, and then went and worked on Capitol Hill for a little while. And then worked at a university for a little while, and then uh, was able to come back as a commissioner, which um, which has been a real honor. And so as a commissioner, I'm, I'm one of typically five. We're down one right now. There's typically five of us, one of whom is the chairman. Uh, that's not me. And, and so we are the yet. ones who make the decision. Not you yet. <laughs> We're the ones who make the decisions on, uh, on, enforcement actions and regulation. And so we, we actually get to vote. And then we have a large staff uh, of more than, it's about 4,500 people working for us. Um, and, and so they're the ones who do the day-to-day work. And so a lot of the things that you'll see coming out on crypto, for example, are coming from the staff. And there are only certain times where the commission itself will get involved. Um, and so one one thing that I think is really important to understand in this space is that the SEC has a pretty broad jurisdiction. We oversee what are called the capital markets in, in the United States. And so that means we oversee stock markets, we oversee broker dealers, investment advisors. Um, and so crypto has sort of fallen into our space, but is only one piece of what we do. Um, and so I think it's sometimes difficult for people watching from the outside to understand that. And so, um, you know, we have these securities laws. We've been around as an agency since the 30s, 1930s. Uh, So we're pretty old. And we have these securities laws, which are pretty old also. And 
so trying to fit new things into those securities laws can be a little difficult at times. Okay, and you said there um, that you oversee the capital markets. How exactly do you oversee them? What's the what's the remit of, um, I guess, the SEC? It's um, kind of a seamless segue into the next section. What, what does the SEC yeah. do, and and what is your um, context um, for operations within the U.S.? So we have a our, our remit is to protect investors, um, to facilitate fair, orderly, and efficient markets, uh, and facilitate capital formation. So what that means is that we're essentially, I mean, protecting investors is is fairly straightforward, um, but we're also trying to make sure that investors are able to meet people who need their money and provide the money to them so that people can grow their enterprises. And so that's kind of the, the remit is really trying to make sure that that intersection between the investor and the person who has a use for the money um, is smooth and works well. And so from my perspective, the reason I'm, I'm delighted to be in this job is because I think that key to prosperity and to people's, people's uh, ability to live, to live lives that are full is the ability to maximize the use of their talents, right? And so how can they maximize the use of their talents? The economy needs to work well and the markets need to work well so that two people who want to enter into a transaction that's good for both of them are able to do that without friction. Um, and so that's kind of what I view our role as doing. We set the regulatory framework within which markets are able to work and operate. Okay. So effectively, investor protection then um, and, and making sure that there's no undue practice between investors and um, perhaps people that are acting in not necessarily fraudulent or malpractice, but with, uh, with intents that may not be completely honorable. Yeah, so we do. We protect investors from fraud. That's one piece of what we do. And I think an important other piece of investor protection is making sure they have opportunities to invest in things they want to invest in. So, you know, it it's not my decision to tell you, here's what you can invest in. It's my, it's my uh, responsibility to tell you there are certain ground rules within which people have to operate to offer you investments and to sell you investments. But beyond that, it's your choice. You make your own decisions. And we're just here to monitor the market. Um, but protecting does include more than just protecting from fraud. Mm -hmm. It really, it also includes ensuring a large number of opportunities for investors. Mm -hmm. Okay, excellent. So um, I was wondering if you could um, paint a bit of a picture back to the sort of uh, origins, maybe the, more of the origin story of the SEC itself and the, the, the Howie test um, and, and oranges. Um, are you able to give us an overview? Because um, I, I know it may be frustrating for some of the more seasoned pros in the crypto space, but um, it was certainly new to me about sort of 12 months ago. Um, when I started getting to more detail on what a security is, how it's defined, and how how it emerged, and what that initial acid test was, um, are you able to give us an overview of uh, of that? Yeah. So, so the Howey test, um, which a lot of people in this world now know about, um, is is sort of an obscure thing that I learned about as a law student in law school, and it actually doesn't come from the SEC itself. It comes from the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court um, in the 40s, in the 1940s, was considering a case where um, the, the thing being offered to investors was a piece of an orange grove. 
And so one could say, well, hey, that looks a lot like real estate to me. You're buying a piece of land with some orange trees on it. Why is that a security? And so what the court concluded is that it, because of the way it was being sold, it was being sold not only as this piece of land, but as in we'll, tell, we'll take care of those orange trees for you and you'll get a share of the profits. And so what the court said is, hey, that looks a lot like a security. It's an investment contract, which is one type of security. So the court took this position that it's it's form over it, it's it's not it, it's substance that they look at, not just form. You can you can tell me it's a piece of real estate, but if it's actually a security, we're going to say it needs to be regulated like a security. And so that's kind of how we got um, the start of where we are now. And then over time, courts have interpreted Howie and interpreted it pretty broadly so that quite a few different types of things can fall into this bucket of things called securities. And so now when we look at um, digital assets, we're looking at them through that Howie lens, Mm -hmm. which means that it's a facts and circumstances question, which means, and this is very frustrating to lots of people, there aren't often, you know, ways that we can draw clear lines. Instead, we say, okay, look at the facts and circumstances and then assess for yourselves whether or not these are securities. And that can be a bit daunting for people who aren't used to used to doing that. It's even daunting for those of us who are, because I think there, there are lots of gray areas. And, and, and so on that then, what, what are some of the key challenges? So what are some of the key challenges that you face as the SEC in the regulation or the definition of regulation around digital assets on one side of the coin, but then also on the other side of the coin, what are some of the challenges or issues that people who are creating either uh, decentralized or centralized um, digital assets, what are some of the challenges that they face then and how are the two starting to meet or butt heads or not butt heads as, as it may? Mm-hmm. So I think that the, the place where for us the problem is that we want to make sure that we're looking past what someone says something is to whether it actually is a security. So if you're just trying to do, if you're just trying to raise money and you slap the label of crypto on it, but you're doing what people have been doing for generations to raise money for their enterprises, that's a security and we're going to treat it as that. So for us, it's it's making sure that we're pulling things in that we would have pulled in as securities in any other era with any other name. Um, But on the side of the people who are involved in in these crypto projects, what they're trying to figure out is, okay, how can we we make an offer? If, If we are trying to raise money for our project and we're really trying to use the securities laws to do that, then how can we do that in a way that's consistent with the securities laws? There are ways to do it. You can either um, follow the securities laws or you can operate under an exemption, um, Mm -hmm. which allows you to offer and sell securities to the public, but you're not subject to all the same rules as you would be if you're doing it in the normal course of business. Mm -hmm. So for, for them, I mean, I think it's just trying to understand when are we in the securities regime and when are we safely outside of it? Um, and so we just put out this guidance um, a week or two ago that was intended to be helpful in that regard and you know, spelled out some of the things that people can think about. But because under Howie, we've, we've, the courts and we have 
taken a pretty broad view of what could count as a security, this is an area where, you know, it's easy to fall over the line into the security bucket and to get in trouble with us if you're not if you're not operating um, consistent with our laws. So, it, so lots of people in this space expect it to be massive in the, in the years coming forward. Does that therefore challenge actually the, the concept of how you classify security more broadly, potentially, if it grows big and or big enough? Well, I guess it depends on what happens with the technology and with the different projects. So you can imagine a truly decentralized um, project where there are lots of people putting in efforts, their own efforts to make this project into what it is. Um, and that looks very different than some of the ones that we've seen thus far, which is really one or a group of people putting out a white paper and saying, this is what we're planning to do. It's not a functional network. It's something that they're, they're laying out the plans for down the road. Um, and it looks much more like a company. And that's kind of what has us saying, all right, we come in when we think there's what we call an information asymmetry, mm -hmm. which means that one party has a lot of information and the other party, the would-be investor, needs that information to figure out whether it should invest, whether he, he or she should invest. And so we say if if you, the promoter of this project, are central to this project and, and whether or not it succeeds really depends on your efforts, then we need to know a little bit about you and what your plans are. And that's kind of what the securities laws try to do. But you can imagine for what some people envision in this space is really bringing together the efforts of lots of people all over the world to engage jointly in a project in which they're all participating. To me, that looks a lot less like our typical company trying to raise funds. And so I don't think that ultimately those get captured by our securities laws. Um, if they are at the beginning, then there will be a point when they're no longer, when when tokens that are sold um, are no longer need no longer to be sold pursuant to our securities laws. So just so just picking up on that, then um, is there? How do you define a point at which there's a project that's raised funds through an ICO? It's written a white paper and um, it hasn't built anything yet, but then it does build it but it has to be dependent on those central developers. Um, so effectively, it's, it's a centralized protocol. It's, in essence, no different to a business undertaking perhaps a novel, um, a novel set of fundraising. But then over the course of time, say between 12 and 18 months, it becomes a decentralized um, entity, um, you know, in the sense of uh, cryptocurrencies, you know, something like Ethereum or other projects like that, or actually let's avoid specific projects, but um, it, it develops a global mining network and it, and it really does achieve full decentralization and that bottleneck and dependency on one or two developers um, goes away and it becomes a more community-led open source project. Is there a grace period that they should reach out to you and say, look, this is what we're doing? We need 12 to 18 months to, to do this. Can you give us a, a green light to do it? And then our target is in 18 months to have achieved this. Um, or would you sort of um, work with them throughout or even prevent them from doing something in the, in the first place? How, what, would, what would the SEC's approach to a project like that be? Well, if they're, if they're using the token sale to raise money to fund the project, then that likely is 
going to be considered a security. So that means that for that 12 to 18 months, if they're offering that token, they're going to have to treat those offerings as if they're securities offerings. Now, there may come a point when they can come to us and say, all right, we're fully decentralized, so now you don't really have a, a call. You know, there, there's, there's nothing that anymore interacts with the securities laws. That's an unusual thing for us. So that is another challenge for us, I think, mm -hmm. is if we actually see some of these networks become fully functional, can we drop it and say, okay, we're done? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think that that's going to be a really important test for us. One worry that I have is that some of the way that we've interpreted, for example, the staff guidance that came out a couple weeks ago still has some pretty broad language. And I think it will be hard to come to a point where you say, okay, there's, you know, the, the, the active participant is no longer the one who's really central to this project mm -hmm. because that person is likely to still be involved just as, but as you said, it'll be open source. There'll be other people contributing to it. So I think that's going to be a challenge for us. And I think we need to spend more time sort of puzzling through that one and figuring out if yeah. we can provide more guidance mm. on that. And I guess we haven't necessarily seen that maturity yet. There's, you know, we saw in 2017 a huge number of um, organizations um, and entities raising money and funds for their projects uh, through ICOs. From what you've just said there, it sounds like all of them pretty much all of them would fall foul of um, SEC uh, regulation in the sense that it would be they would be raising funds for um, a token which would be which didn't exist and therefore would be a security and I guess the test is now are they able to achieve that level of decentralization um, in the next I guess six to twelve months and and work with you on on achieving that approval? yeah and you know so far again a lot of projects are still in this sort of phase where they're trying to get to that fully decentralized um, place. So I think there remains to be seen, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen. So we've brought some enforcement actions and obviously some of them have been very clear where it's some guy who throws a white paper up, raises a lot of money and buys a lot of Ferraris. And so that's, you know, on one side, and I think none of us would disagree that we should go after that as as securities fraud. He lied in what he was going to do in his white paper. Um, more recently, there have been some that are really legitimate um, enterprises. You know, think I, I don't like to talk about specific enforcement actions, but you might think, for example, of Gladius, which came out recently. Which you know they had a they had a project and a plan, um, and and so. We see a range of enforcement actions. Um, I think that case sends a message that if you think that maybe you've run afoul of our securities laws, you should come in and talk to us um, and we can work with you. Uh, but it is, you know, it is daunting for people. I understand that. So um, if we stay on the topic then, the notion of security tokens, um, how would, um, what's the approach from the SEC there to tokens that want to stay, don't want to fall foul of regulation, uh, they want to work with you, they're being very open and honest, and, and they have, they've clearly defined a project, but it, they, they know in advance that it's going to be classed as a security. How would they go about um, establishing the right working relationship and not falling foul, but 
still wanting to do an ICO to, to raise funds and um, and then perhaps achieve decentralization over a 12-month period? What's the right process for, for them? Well, I mean, I have to say, I would suggest the person go talk to a securities lawyer and there are lawyers, you know, who can give good advice, but there are ways to do it um, pursuant to different frameworks that we have in place that have different levels of, of intensity of regulation. So you can pick the level of intensity that you think fits best what you're trying to accomplish, um, how much money you're trying to raise, how many, you know, are you trying to raise it from the general public or you have a smaller group of people you're trying to raise from. So these factors will determine which one of our methods you'll want to follow. Now, again, I will say that I'm, I'm, I, I wish that I could tell you that we have we have examples of companies that have gone through our process and have been able to do it, um, you know, and, and and get through the process and successfully raise money. And so that's a frustration because I think we need to be able to demonstrate to people that yes, if you come in and work with us, we've got, you know, we'll you'll be able to if you provide us everything that we ask for, you'll be able to get through that process and go out and raise money. But so far, we haven't gotten there. So I think that's a big um, responsibility on us to get to get moving there. Um, so kind of in line with this conversation, and one of the things that I particularly liked about the episode that you recorded, with the Unchained episode with Laura, was you started talking about the kind of themes of decentralization. I think it was a really interesting conversation that you guys were having around how people could potentially kind of self-classify their own projects around specific themes of whether it's decentralized or not. It'd be good to, to kind of recap a bit of that conversation as what some of those themes would be. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we're sort of at the cusp, right? We're, we're waiting to see what people are go going to do with their projects. But I do hope that we can get to a point where um, if we truly have a project that has you know, people participating from all over the world who have their own thing to contribute to it, mm. um, that that just falls outside of us at the SEC, what we're doing. We, we really shouldn't have any interaction with that mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's just a group of people um, from all over the place who are joining together in a, a common enterprise, but it's one that, that they're all essential participants in. And that's kind of where I think a lot of the, 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 the thinking behind this movement really is, is to try to say, we want to get rid of um, intermediaries and we want to just deal with each other directly. And we found a way that we can, we can do that um, because we don't need to know each other to trust each other that way because there are other mechanisms that enable that trust. Mm. And so it is kind of a new era for us if that, if that really will succeed then that's a new era for us. And I don't want us to be standing in the way of that. Mm -hmm. I, so it, it's, it, it's interesting because it, it, the way that the way that, that sounds like the conversation is going is, are you potentially doing yourself, or is the technology potentially doing the SEC out of a job in the future? Because if two individuals are creating trust between two parties, then is that oversight required? I'm bi I, I'm, I'm bi Stig, I'm Commissioner Purse can hear you. She can hear you on the line, don't they? <laughs> you know, look, we, we set up our regulatory framework or should set it up to match the reality of what we need as a society. And so if your vision comes through um, where we can, really, we can really radically change things, then someone may say, well, we don't need an SEC anymore. 
I suspect that would be quite a long way down the road. Um, but, you know, again, I think none of us, even regulators, should be so wedded to the regulatory structure that we have to say, well, whatever economic activity is going to go on, whatever human activity is going to go on has to fit, has to assume that the SEC will always operate exactly as it always has. But, you know, as I see it, it's pretty likely we're, we've got a mandate for a while. Um, but again, you know, what I love about this movement, um, the, the crypto digital asset movement, is that you've got a lot of people who are taking a fresh look at problems that have existed for centuries um, for all of human civilization. And they're saying, all right, we have some new ideas about how to solve those problems. And, you know, years and years ago, when people looked at the internet, they didn't think that would be a big thing. And it turned out it was quite a big thing. And so similarly, I mean, I'm not a technologist. I don't have the ability to see into the future. But you've got a lot of people who have some pretty interesting ideas about how they could change the way we interact with one another. And so I want to make sure that we fulfill our responsibility as a securities regulator under the rules that we have now, but that we're flexible enough so that when people want to try new things and they say there's something in your laws that doesn't work, we'll work with them. Um, and, and that I'm flexible enough to say, yeah, I mean, someday it may be that the SEC uh, isn't performing the same function anymore or, 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 you know, I can, we can all envision that things will change in the future and we as regulators need to be flexible as well. It's, um, it's interesting because you don't necessarily always put regulation and innovation in in the same conversation very often, but actually it must be, well, it's a question actually, is it actually a fascinatingly exciting time to be at the SEC because of what this potentially is doing and challenging around how you deliver regulatory policy? It is an interesting time to be here. You know, unfortunately, crypto may feel like it's the first time innovation has slammed against the SEC, but that's not true. Um, we, over many years, have been very slow to accommodate new innovations in the financial industry. Um, and so it is a good time to be here because this is this is a, a group of people who is pretty eager for us mm -hmm. to, to give them answers. And so they're pushing in a way that maybe we haven't been pushed in the past. And so I think that's very healthy for us, even though it's sometimes a bit uncomfortable. Okay, and on that topic, do you what are your views on on the role that the U.S. and the SEC has regarding leadership in the space? Um, do you have any concerns that the U.S. might perhaps fall behind the rest of the world if 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 you aren't as proactive and as um, fast moving in defining what the approach to regulation in these crypto assets is? Because you know we're, we're dealing with assets and innovations that are to an extent borderless and they don't necessarily have a natural geographic home or location in the way that other industries and, uh, and new innovations previously did. So um, is there a question here that actually the US needs to lead, uh, create a friendly environment um, and um, make the most of this explosion in innovation and growth um, early to avoid these innovators and, uh, and projects going elsewhere to more friendly environments like I think Singapore is um, making quite a play for that, Malta at the moment as well. Uh, what are your views on that? 
Well, I do worry about us falling behind in the sense of if if people and I've heard that this is happening where people are saying, you know what, I I would love to be in the U.S. That's that's where a lot of the talent is. But I need to be somewhere else because I'm scared of the of the implications, the legal implications. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in Asia, for example, um, that's not happening in the U.S. So, yes, I do. I do have concerns about that. The, the the global nature of this industry is actually not that different in some ways from other industries that we regulate. I mean, the the financial industry itself is pretty borderless. Um, and, and there often are problems where, you know, where are the lines between where, where our jurisdiction ends and where the UK's jurisdiction starts or where you know, Japan's jurisdiction starts. There are always questions, and those are very thorny and difficult questions. Um, and so we're seeing some of the same kinds of things here. I think what makes this space unique and what makes me hopeful about it is that it really is trying to bring together people, um, you know, just ordinary people from all across the world, and, and I think can transform the lives of ordinary people all across the world if were, if they're able to work together in these sort of seamless networks that they themselves build. Um, and so that's something that's new for us, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily the international thing, piece that's new. Um, we are working with other regulators across the world, and I think there's some benefit to, well, there's certainly a benefit to working together and understanding what approaches other regulators are taking and, and we can learn from one another. Um, what I've heard from some people, and again, this is a little bit controversial, and I'm not sure really where I stand on this, but some people say, hey, you know what, it's good to have a little bit of regulatory uncertainty because there are things that can happen in that period of regulatory uncertainty that might not happen if we had really tight regulations clamping down on everything. Um, now, on the other hand, I think a lot of times it, regulatory uncertainty can be very stifling for innovation. So. Uh, you know, I guess it's a balance, and I guess we can see where if if it works better in another country, then we should look at what's happening there and say, what are they doing that we're not, or what aren't they doing that we are. Mm -hmm. So, so how do you how do you find that personally? Because I know you've talked quite heavily about um, tech for good and how that's such a large driving force for you joining the SEC. So, how do you find? How do you balance how you feel about driving that kind of agenda, but also then working within the existing regulatory landscape and organization that you do? Well, I mean, it's not always easy because, you know, I come from a perspective of, and, you know, I've, I've long held this perspective that people are, are generally quite able to make decisions for their own lives. And, and you know, they know more about their own lives than I know about their lives. And so who am I to second guess what decisions they make? Um, and, and so I think we really, that, that freedom of, uh, freedom of, of human action, right, is, is a very important piece of what we have to think about as regulators. So we not only have to think about the economic cost of what we do, but we have to think about, well, are we impinging on people's ability to make decisions in their own lives. And sometimes that's right for us to do. Sometimes we have to do that. Um, but we should be very careful when we do that because we're taking away something that that person would otherwise be able to do. So it, it does, 
you know, it plagues me as in my job as a regulator because I worry about that. I mean, I worry about my taking away someone else's autonomy. Um, and I worry about protecting investors too. And I worry about protecting our markets. So it's, it's a constant tension, but I think that's a healthy tension. I think it really is important for regulators to have sort of, you know, one, one person standing on one shoulder saying we need to protect investors and another saying, yes, but that means we need to protect their autonomy to do what they want also. Um, so I think it's healthy. Nice subtle reference there as well to Human Action, the Austrian economics book by Ludwig von Mises. Um, I'm sure you're a, a big fan. But um, so moving the conversation slightly onto um, onto more specifics about where we are at the moment, um, I was wondering if we could so just establish a couple of uh, facts, if we can call them facts. Um, so where we are at the moment, Bitcoin is not a security. Ethereum was a security when it launched under the, 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 the guys that we talked about before and the fact that it was centralized, but is now deemed to be decentralized enough that it's not a security. Is that the current landscape? Well, so I think what you've been reading is probably Bill Hinman's speeches. Um, Bill Hinman is the director of our division of corporation finance, and he's, he's essentially um, made comments along those lines. Um, I, in my role, don't think it's, a, you know, typically people don't come to, let me back up a minute. So you can come to us and, and tell us and ask us whether you have to offer something as a security or not. So we just issued, the staff just issued a no action letter, it's called, which means they tell you, you come in, you tell them what you're planning to do, and they tell you, we're not going to recommend that the SEC bring an enforcement action against you. So... We can, in certain circumstances, do that, um, but it's not typical for us to go out and say, hey, this isn't a security, and this isn't a security, and this might have been a security, but once, but now is no longer. I think, you know, it, given the unique circumstances, that's what Bill Hinman was trying to do, um, and I think that can be helpful, but I don't think other people should assume that we're going to issue a list and say, hey, these are and these are not securities. Okay. Cool. Um, so I had a question for the audience uh, from the audience here. Um, we so in one of our previous interviews, we interviewed uh, a lady called Caitlin Long. I'm not sure whether you you're familiar with Caitlin or her work, but um, her her previous role was um, at Morgan Stanley, I believe, looking after their pensions, and she's now uh, taking a very active role in supporting Wyoming with their digital assets bills. Um, and we, we were chatting to to Caitlin, and what she um, said, we mentioned that we were having a uh, we were hoping to have a chat with you um, and she said it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on the state legislative efforts at the moment to clarify the crypto asset landscape and what she was saying just for more context is um, it, I think this is how the crowdfunding um, bills and crowdfunding um, environment was approved when it was introduced states started carving uh, back the SEC's rules for some securities registrations and eventually a critical mass of states got together pushed Congress to adopt the looser standards um, and uh, and it was kind of moved forward in that way. Is that your view of where we are at the moment, or do you have a, a different stance? So I think the U.S. regulatory system is very confusing to a lot of people because of this, the fact that we've got the federal level of regulation, and then all the states get a, a role in regulation as well. Uh, and so, you know, if you're trying to do business here, you not only have to worry about us, the SEC, but you've got to think about the state uh, regulatory framework. But the states, I think, have been very helpful in a number of these areas. Crowdfunding is one where they kind of have paved the way to say, 
they get to regulate within their state. And so they've said, hey, within our state, you can do crowdfunding. And a number of states did that. And then eventually Congress told us that we needed to have a crowdfunding framework as well. And so there was a federal one. Um, and I think on the, by the same, the same approach is being, is being taken here where we see some states sort of leaning um, out ahead of us. Um, and, and Wyoming has, has uh, put forth some legislation to kind of carve out um, digital assets. And there's an effort in Congress as well in, in, to do a federal sort of safe harbor for certain types of assets. So it would provide some clear lines about what is and what isn't um, a digital asset and then, and then the regulation that flows from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so often it does, candidly, it takes Congress to push us to do something like that, to put a safe harbor in place, which we might not do on our own. But if Congress tells us to do it, then we'll do it. And so I think that we're seeing that same kind of state-inspired dynamic going on now in, in, in Congress. Okay, perfect. And we are bizarrely rapidly running out of time. And the, the one area that we really wanted to talk about in a bit more detail is ETFs. So um, the question that's on everyone's lips is, when ETF? Yeah, that's one of the questions that people people ask. Although people have stopped asking it with as much frequency as they used to. Um, <laughs> you know what I like to remind people is that so exchange traded funds, which are essentially a kind of collective investment pool, have been around since the the nineties time, um, and we're just now getting around to writing a rule for those. Funds. I'm not talking crypto. I'm just talking traditional exchange-traded funds. So that is a very good indication of how long it takes things to get done at the SEC. Mm-hmm. So I'll start with that. Um, F- but a, a number of people have come in and, and asked us um, to approve exchange-traded products that have an underlying um, crypto mm-hmm. underlying. And so, you know, I... I dissented from the disapproval of one of those last summer. Um, And there are a number of others in the pipeline and each one sort of has a different way of operating. So they're different, different potential models. Um, uh, And so each one will be judged on its unique facts and circumstances. My fear is that what we've done in this area is we've taken uh, we've taken a merit regulation, which means um, we essentially are judging whether we think it's a good product or not for investors. And that typically isn't the role of the SEC. We tell you, you got to tell investors what your product is, and then they can make a decision about whether they want to buy it. It seems to me in this area, we are being so conservative that we're we're um, not willing to let things move that we would in other if if they didn't involve crypto. Um, now, that said, I don't know, you know, there are a number of, of applications pending, and I don't know what will happen with those. So we're all waiting. I'm waiting too. a lot of times, the staff is the one that takes the first action on those types of they have what's called delegated authority, which means we, t- we give them authority to act within a certain sphere. And so they get the first, um, the first crack at it, and then it can come up to the commission and we can, we can look at it again. 
So, um, as, so, as, so asking a, give you any clarity. No, no, that's fine. Look, asking a better quality question uh, than when ETF. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess what I was kind of uh, lead, uh, joking there, but alluding to, what are the key things that the SEC are looking for? Because I think we've seen, I think you said you've dissented on, on one. We've seen um, a Vanek SolidX ETF um, that was put forward and then withdrawn because of the, I think, I believe in part because of the um, government um, shutdown. But it's currently with you for, for review. There's the Bitwise ETF. Each one's slightly different flavor. Mm-hmm. And each one puts forward a different um, a different cut um, of, of kind of the same thing. They're, what, what they're all essentially looking for is an institutional grade investment vehicle for, for Bitcoin. Um, and is there is it a question of um, just the, these, um, these applications helping to mature the understanding of the space and um, eventually one will arrive that actually satisfies all the requirements? Or is it that each one is judged on their own merits and actually there's no right or wrong template that that people haven't filled in it's just um the industry itself hasn't matured enough or it's not in the right state and uh, there's there's kind of both sides the industry needs to mature the right kind of application needs to mature and the sec in general needs to feel that the investors um the investors are protected sufficiently based on the quality of the application What's the yeah, stance there? So there, there are certain securities law thresholds they have to meet, but I think there's some big questions that we see coming up time and again in this space from the SEC, and those relate to custody of, of crypto assets. So how can you how can you assure us that you that you're the one holding these assets, that they're protected and safe with you, and that no one else is holding them at the same time? Um, and then there's been a lot of talk, but I think this really is a focus of, of a lot of folks at the SEC, um, questions about manipulation in the underlying markets in the, in the, in the crypto markets. Um, and so we saw, you know, Bitwise took an interesting tack there where, where, where they actually did an analysis and they said, yeah, hey, lots of the market is manipulated, but there's a portion of it that isn't and that actually works quite nicely, um, quite like a, health, a very healthy market. Um, but I think it's it's really those issues of the the custody uh, and manipulation, and then to the extent which some of these products are not open to retail investors, but to the extent that they're open to retail investors, you know there are going to be questions about investor protection. Um, what you know what are you going to do when certain scenarios arise, like? Um, if there's a 51% attack, what are you going to do? If there's an airdrop, what are you going to do? Some of these kinds of things, mm. you have to answer those questions too. But I, I really think the big one, the big questions out there are, are custody and, and, and manipulation of the market. Is, is insurance um, a factor, I guess? Uh, does that something that if you, if you have a retail investor, um, does insurance play a role um, to make sure that they know that, in, that their investment is protected and they could, there's some kind of recourse if something goes wrong? Well, that is actually another very interesting area. So we have a we have a program called CIPIC, um, which is sort of it deals with brokers and their and their customers, um, and it's not an insurance program, but it it provides protection. So probably beyond the scope of this uh, of this podcast, but there are questions about you know how do some how do some of these assets get covered in that kind of a scenario. Um, but you know, part of it too is just telling people, as with any other investment, you can lose money. 
right? And so making sure that people know they can lose money, which, you know, a lot of investors are really gung-ho about things until they they lose money and then they come back and they say, why didn't you stop me from buying it? Um, and again, I mean, that's where, where my view is, look, people need to be taught and, and encouraged to be skeptical, whether it is something related to crypto or whether it's something related to, um, you know, a much more standard type of, of investment product. Mm. Um, ask questions, right? So, so don't just commit huge sums of your money to a project or a person you know nothing about unless you're very, you've done, you know, some, some very good due diligence. Um, and those lessons are hard to learn. And, mm -hmm. and so I think on that side, you know, it's really just encouraging people to, to do some thinking on their own. Okay, great. Um, sorry, I'm suddenly, I'm looking at the time and very sadly, I think we're going to have to start sort of heading, careering gently towards a finish. Um, but what I really wanted to ask you now is, um, what do you see sort of the next, let's say a year, two years looking like from a regulatory perspective? Also, I'm conscious if you, um, if you go and search your name on the SEC website, your term finishes in 2020. So what does that mean? What's happening for you? What's coming up? What are you potentially going to do next? Um, so kind of next in the space of regulation and next for you? Um, well, the next for me is easy. I have no idea. The next for regulation is, um, you know, I think we're going to keep working through these issues. I, I'm often very negative about about my own agency because I do think we need to be pushed a little bit to, to move a little bit faster. But we do have people here who are working hard to understand these markets and they're working hard to to figure out ways that, you know, maybe we can make adjustments. So I, I am hopeful that we'll see some more. I, I think this guidance was positive. I think we'll see some more guidance coming from the staff, even though I didn't agree with every bit of this guidance. I think the fact that the staff got it out was positive. Um, so I, I do think that we'll see some progress coming from the SEC I hope that we'll work with our fellow regulators in the U.S. so that, you know, because part of the problem is if you don't fall within the SEC's regulations, you might fall within the CFTC's regulations. And then, you know, there are the money laundering regulations. There are all kinds of potential uh, interactions with our regulatory system. So I'm hoping that we'll, we'll be able to work with our fellow regulators uh, and maybe provide some joint clarity as well. Um, now, of course, a lot depends on on what the innovators do. If they all decide to go to Singapore, then I guess um, that'll change the picture for us as well. Perfect. Um, we're about out of time, but we have one final question for you before we finish. Um, this, Commissioner Purse, this is the Crypto and Grill podcast. Um, all of your favorite Twitter characters, avatars, cats, dogs, spacesuits, um, you have um, decided to c celebrate the end of your term at the SEC and invite them all to your, I assume you have a ranch in, in, in Ohio, uh, for a giant uh, barbecue and celebration. Um, what are you going to grill and keep all of the, um, the, the hungry uh, avatars satisfied with? Yeah, well, so as with most things, I don't um, typically like things that other people do. So um, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm all about carbohydrates. And so on my grill, and this may, this may mean everyone will be very happy that I'm done because they won't want any more of this, but on my grill is going to be cake. I'm going to bake a cake on the, on the grill, a big cake, and we're going to celebrate that way. And you can bake cakes on grills. 
So um, it, this is possible. Good riddance. Good riddance to you, Hester Pierce, after that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. No um, need. <laughs> Look, this has been uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you for your time, and um, we wish you all the best in the future. I wish you guys the best as well. Thanks very much. Thank you. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. <laughs>